millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Karen Millwood Hargrave on her latest novel, The Mercies. Karen Millwood Hargrave is an award-winning poet, playwright and novelist. The Mercies, which we're going to be talking about on today's show, is her first novel for adults. Her best-selling works for children include The Girl of Ink and Stars and have won numerous awards including the Waterstones Children's Book Prize, the British Book Award Children's Book of the Year and the Blackwell's Children's Book of the Year. They have also been shortlisted for prizes such as the Costa Children's Book Award, the Blue Peter Best Story Award and the Foyles Book of the Year Award. Kieran, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me. Can you first of all describe, how would you describe The Mercies? So The Mercies is the story of these women who are left behind on a tiny Arctic Circle island called Vardja. And in 1617, this was the site of a spectacular, supernatural almost storm that killed 40 of the island's men. And it's a really tiny island if you look at it on a map. So that was an absolutely devastating event and left it basically a matriarchal society. And then three years later... The same island, Vardja, becomes the site of Scandinavia's worst ever witch hunts. So the Mercies is concerned with what happened, with imagining what happened between those two events. Vardja now, have you have you visited it as part of your research? Yes, I've been twice, once in summer and once in winter. And summer I went on my own because I thought I wouldn't, you know, get freaked out because <laughs> it wasn't going to be dark all the time. But actually the fact that the sun doesn't set in the summer was almost more disconcerting. My body really reacted to it very strongly. I felt very restless when I was there. And just because, you know, it's summer, it doesn't mean it's warm. (laughs) And the sun's up, it doesn't mean it's warm. And you're right by the sea. And so these massive sea frets would sort of roll in out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I couldn't see a foot, you know, in front of me. Um, So it was a very atmospheric and useful experience as a writer to feel those sorts of details. And in summer, again, the smell of the heather was so strong. It smelled like honey. The entire island smelled like honey. And that wasn't anything I'd experienced before. And then in winter, I went back with my husband so that he could take some photographs. And the cold was just extraordinary. I don't know if you've ever been that far north. I've been to Tromsø, which is the furthest, the furthest north. 
Yes. I, so you fly from Tromsø to Varja. Um, that's the only sort of linking flight that you can get. And I think you have to connect through Oslo even to get to Tromsø. So it's a bit of a production to get there. And in winter, that was when the cruelty of what happened in Varja really hit home. And, you know, the women who were accused of witchcraft were ducked in the sea. And it really brought home why people believed in witches and why people believed in superstitions. Because the dark, you know, you're living in this dark for about 22 hours per day. And the rest of the time, it's this bluish navy light sort of lingering over the sea and all the seabirds are screaming. It was just incredibly atmospheric and also made me really admire the people who made their homes there in the time before, you know, central heating and goose down stuffed blankets and things like that. So yeah, so in in, um, 1617, when this novel begins... What would it have been like? What were what were the sort of conditions that the people that were clinging to this, you know, life on this frontier have been like? It really is clinging as well. That's such a good word for it, like barnacles on a rock, because even the Sami people, the indigenous people who lived, who have inhabited Finnmark and the northernmost reaches forever, they still move south in summer. So for people to settle there was a sort of madness. And it just shows how desperate people were to find, you know, a niche of the world to call their own. So they really were pioneers in that sense. It was interesting how few specific details I could find about what life was like for the Norwegians at that time uh, in this place. And it was one of the things that I talked to an academic about, um, Dr. Liv Helen Willemson. Her research informed a lot of what occurs in the Mercies. You know, I asked her, what did these people eat? And she looked at me and she sort of said, fish? (laughs) Yes, besides fish, what, what else? Could they grow anything because there are no trees this far north? So what did they burn in their fires? These details weren't recorded and required a deeper dive into my research than I thought would be necessary. I thought that these details might be noted. But of course, normal people's lives at the edges of society, they weren't really of concern to historians. And so they haven't been recorded. So I was going to come back to the the research later on in the interview, but we might as well do it now. So how do you go about researching things like that? The, we'll talk, I guess, about the, the sort of wider historical sort of movements that are going on at, at the time, and obviously the witch hunts later on, but the domestic day-to-day life of, of how these people survived, how do you find that out if it's just not that well written? So you can look with the evidence of your own eyes when you go to these places you know you can see that there's peat that they could have burned or moss there's about an hour's drive out of Varja there's an old fishing village that's standing from about the 1800s I think so you can go and look at the structures and how they might have been you can look to recipes uh, there would have been ancient recipes that just have always existed every country seems to have its own recipe for bread for example and Norway is no different so if there's a scene in the book where two of the main characters make flatbread together and that recipe is the same recipe that you would use now to make that dish it hasn't changed in all that time and so I suppose that the domestic has tended to endure in what's been passed down and we don't have these great sagas written about these women but they did find ways to survive and eventually thrive in these conditions and indeed when they're making that flatbread they talk about it lasting for years 
Yes, so it would turn from a sort of softer bread into a crisp bread almost. You could you could store it in these barrels and you could keep them for years and years. So they used to make them in great quantities and just sort of work through them. So the storm in the novel happens right at the very beginning, almost as a prologue to the actual story. And as you said, this is a real historical event. 40 men were, were lost in it in an instant and all of these women became you know widowed instantly which is i mean horrible enough an event to occur you mentioned in your intro that they become then a sort of matriarchal society which you know in some ways one could expect this might be quite a good thing except it puts them politically, culturally, in an incredibly difficult position with the rest of uh, the sort of Finnmark society. Tell me why. It just wasn't done. It wasn't done for women to fend for themselves. This was a time when feminism was not a concept and very much the order of things was God, king, man, woman. And it was impossible really to break such a, a strong structure and the women do it fairly begrudgingly you know they do it because they have to eat the one of the women emerges as a sort of de facto leader and she's called Kirsten and people comment you know she's such a strong woman but actually she's she knows how to fish and she knows how to butcher reindeer because she's been given those skills by her husband before he dies so again her skill set is bestowed upon her by a man rather than her having any particular get up and go to learn those skills for herself. So I was very keen to place this firmly within the historical context and not, I suppose, to do justice to how hard it was actually to be an independent woman at that time, because it's one of my bugbears in historical fiction when you read a character and they feel contemporary. It feels like doing a disservice to actually how hard it was to move on from those structures historically. So yes, it's not an easy transition for these women. It's not something that they find empowering. It's actually very scary to a lot of them. And a group of the women who Kirsten terms the church women, the Kirk women, they really see this as the work of of devils. They see this as an ungodly thing to take the place of a man in a boat. And that's what starts a lot of the superstition. And indeed, it's it's bad enough that they decide to take it upon themselves to go and fish. But Kirsten, Kirsten at one point is seen wearing trousers. I know. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, she's wearing them because it's practical. She's wearing them because, you know, she's striding around, she's butchering reindeer, she's mending nets. It's not a statement from her. And then she realises it is and she starts to wear them to antagonise. And that's when things get really dangerous for her. So the story follows two main characters and we'll talk about these two um, and then a couple of, of the other characters in a while. But um, first of all, Marin, tell us something about who she is. So Marin is the first protagonist that we meet. She is who we experience the storm through and it's a very bodily, I wanted to make this a very bodily experience for the reader to really place you within her and think how would it feel to be in that body looking through those eyes watching your father your brother your betrothed drown in an instant and really this is a book about a lot of things but it's especially about the after effects of trauma and grief and how 
even after something so traumatic and awful, life goes on and there is hope and there is light and there is love. And Marin, she feels this from a very early point. She thinks, no, I can survive this. She doesn't lose hope in the way that, for example, her mother does. Her mother just completely retreats into herself, loses herself in grief. And Marin is one of the first people alongside Kirsten to draw herself back up and think, we can do this. We can rebuild a life. And I love her for that. I think she's a lot stronger than she realises. Yeah, the the idea of of grief and how it sort of hangs over the island is I think you know once later on we start to see some of the women the the, the Kirk women become sort of you know consumed by the witch hunting it's difficult to sort of disassociate that from the trauma that all of these people are basically dealing with I think. Yes, it's entirely associated. You can draw a direct line between these things. And they all this time, they've been holding this anger in them because they, you know, there must be someone to blame. That is at the centre of everything is they need someone to blame so that they can move on. Because when something so senseless as a natural disaster happens, you know, where does that anger go? And they can't turn it towards God. So they turn it towards each other. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kieran Millwood Hargrave. We're talking about her novel, The Mercies. So Ursa, or Ursula, um, the other main protagonist of the story, comes from a completely different world to Maren, but at the same time is still under a lot of the similar strictures of her sex. Yes, she wasn't originally in 
the book didn't exist, which is so strange to say now because she's such an intrinsic part of it. And I got to about a third of the way through my first draft. And to be honest, I was getting a bit depressed. I just felt a bit claustrophobic. The the story felt stale almost. I needed to introduce some light, some laughter, some different texture. And that's when I had the idea of Ursa. And she is a ship owner's daughter from Bergen. And her father has fallen on hard times. Her mother is dead. Her sister is sick. And basically, her father meets someone at the harbour who is looking for a passage north, where he is going to take up this very prestigious commission as a sort of commissioner in the village of Varja on the island. And her father sees an opportunity and essentially marries her off to this stranger, this man, and they venture north and eventually become very much mired in this world. But she brings with her a lot of lightness, a lot of joy that I really enjoyed introducing into the book and onto the island. And indeed, when they when they get there, the situation is, I guess, not as prestigious seeming as as they're expecting. Um, I want to talk about her husband, Absalom Cornet, who's who's a Scottish man. And I guess to introduce why he happens to be Scottish, let's perhaps talk about what the situation is at this time in Northern Europe with the ideas of of witchcraft, I guess. Why is this guy coming from Scotland, of all places? So Denmark, Norway, um, as it was called then, was ruled by King Christian, who is actually the brother-in-law of King James, obviously King of Scotland. And so there was already a really close link geographically and familiarly through this very close relationship. And King James was... You know, we remember him as a tyrant, but he was a very popular king. There's nothing like a good witch hunt to get people on side and to get people united behind a common cause. And he literally wrote the book on it. He literally wrote the book, yes, Demonology, um, showing how to spot, prove and, and find a witch. So he was very much instrumental in that wave of hysteria that sort of swept through Europe and obviously reached America later in the 1600s. But Norway was very quick on the uptake because of this relationship between their kings. And actually the lensman, the ruler over Finnmark, where Varja falls under its jurisdiction, was a man called Hans Koenig, or John Cunningham, as his Scottish name is. And he was a Scotsman who joined the Danish Navy and made a real name for himself as a very successful captain. And he eventually became this ruler over Finnmark and had his seat of power at Varja, at Vardjahus, the uh, castle it's a very wrong word for what it is. It's sort of a, a pit in the ground with, with some buildings scattered in the middle. But he was very much instrumental in the witch hunt starting. And it's very notable to look at his reign. He was a very long standing ruler of the area. And the witch hunts start a couple of years after he takes up his position and they end with his death. So you, you mentioned earlier the the Sami who are you know indigenous to the area. Um, represented here by um, Marin's sister-in-law, um, Dina or Dina. I say Dina. So let's talk about. I mean, I guess as in, in any sort of. 
case where where you need a scapegoat, they're very much implicated in the whole sort of hysteria around witchcraft, aren't they? Yes, there was real unrest sort of being brewed between the indigenous population and the Norwegian population at this time. In 1617, the year of the storm, there was a decree brought in against sorcery by King Christian that made any form of sorcery punishable by death. And before this, I wouldn't say that there was a happy relationship between the indigenous population and Norwegians, but they certainly coexisted. And practices like wind weaving were very common. Uh, Norwegian sailors would go to Sami shamans known as Nwadi and ask them to wind weave and guarantee them safe passage on their fishing trips and things like that. And the first people burned in the witch trials were two Sami men. And most of the victims of the witch trials were women, Norwegian women, but of the men, they were all Sami. And so this is when there really started to be a crusade against these cultures mixing. Um, You mentioned earlier on that this is, I mean, it's a book about why these things happen rather than what happened, because while there is witch hunting, we're not going to give away what happens, obviously, but... There is witch hunts towards the end. The book ends before the wider, largest Scandinavian witch hunt occurs. Can you tell us something about, we talked a little bit about researching the sort of domestic situation. Tell us something about researching the sort of wider history of what happened with those witch hunts. With the witch hunts, they're quite well documented. The academic Dr Liv Helen Williamson, who I visited in Tromsø, she... I mean, actually, this book wouldn't have been possible at any other point because she recently published her English translations of the testimonies of the 91 men and women who were burned on Varja. And she has really managed to capture each of the voices. And there's extraordinary detail in there from which we can discern a lot of real reasons they were burned, because obviously none of these people were witches. They were all innocent of the crimes they were accused of. But what they did have were things like land. And we look at the laws around that time. They quickly changed the law when witch hunts became popular in Norway to say that any witches, their land could be seized and owned by the government, owned by the king. So we really start to see those more insidious motivations start to seep in. Um, So the witch hunts themselves are relatively well documented. It's this gap in between this three-year gap that I was really imagining into. And I think that that's part of why I decided to stop it at the point of the witch hunts, because I felt like I'd read that book. I felt like we all know what happens when that engine gathers steam. And I was more interested in looking at what makes it gather momentum. And it's also interesting, I think, just just sort of like living with these people in this community, knowing that, you know, that's going to happen to them at some point in the future. You know, I think that gives the book a sort of a resonance as well. Yes, that was, I think it gives it strangely more tension that mm-hmm. you know where it's ending. And, you know, I always say, you know, it's no spoiler that this ends in a witch hunt because that's not what the, the book is about. And in some ways it does make it more tense because you know that this great, awful event is coming. You sort of alluded to this earlier as well, but in terms of this is, as you said, it's a historical fiction and um, obviously, you know, very heavily based on reality. But how do you approach creating characters that fit into the, you know, the world of the 1600s and don't seem like contemporary people? I was very keen early on 
that I was very clear that I was going to make these fictional characters. So all their names are amalgams of people who were burned in the trials, but no actual direct copy. And that gave me freedom because I didn't want to be disrespectful in any way. So that gave me freedom to play around with the mix of characters. But really, I think it's just a case of having empathy. I'm greatly interested, for example, in women's education. And my family are very involved with women's education in India, where my mum's from. And still there, there are women and men who can't read and write, don't have access to any sort of way to empower themselves and get along in the world. And that's the position that these women are in. It's beyond them to think that there is a different world, a different life other than the one they are living. And I think that's why Ursa is such a wonderful character, because you see her discover that the world is much bigger than what she had ever expected. And I think those basic emotions of joy, of sadness, of grief, of love, those are all things that every person experiences, no matter if they lived 400 years ago or now. So whilst these women very much are limited by the time they live in, they are still human beings and they are still what we would recognise as people. And so that makes it a lot, the job of the novelist, a lot easier once you strip it back to those basic emotions. Just one other thing from me then, before we finish, I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book if you would. How different was the experience of writing this novel compared to your previous books, your books, so-called books for children? So different, not easier, not harder. One of the things was that I found I was allowed to sit with my characters a lot more. And it was a revelation to find that you could set a whole chapter in one room. <laughs> that gives you a sort of freedom as a novelist that you, you certainly don't have when you're writing for children. With children's books, the way the characters show you who they are is that they act, they do things. Whereas with a book for adults, you can be more interior, you can really settle into a mood, you can set the scene a lot more. And it's certainly something that I enjoyed a lot. Um, but I will continue to write for children as well as for adults going forward. Can I get you to read us a little bit of The Mercies then to end with? Yes, of course. Um, so I'm just going to read to you from the beginning and when we meet Marin for the first time. The storm comes in like a finger snap. That's how they'll speak it in the months and years after, when it stops being only an ache behind their eyes and a crushing at the base of their throats, when it finally fits into stories. Even then, it doesn't tell how it actually was. There are ways words fall down. They give shape too easily, carelessly, and there was no grace, no ease to what Marin saw. That afternoon, the best sail is spread like a blanket across her lap, Mama and Dean at its other corners. Their smaller, neater fingers are working smaller, neater stitches into the windwear tears, while she patches cloth over holes left by the mast fastenings. Beside the fire, there's a stack of white heather drying, cut and brought by her brother Eric from the low mountain on the mainland. Tomorrow, after... Mama will give her three palmfuls for her pillow. She'll wrench it apart, stuff it earth and all into the casing, the honey scent almost sickening after months of only the stale smell of sleep and unwashed hair. She'll take it between her teeth and scream until her lungs wheeze with the sweet dirt tang of it. Now, something makes her look up and out towards the window. A bird, dark against dark, a sound. She stands to stretch, to watch the bay flat grey, and beyond it the open sea. Tips of waves like smashed glass glittering. The boats are loosely pegged out against it by their two small lights, bow and aft, barely flickering. 
She imagines she can tell Papa and Eric's apart from the others, with its second best sail rigged tight to the mast, the jerk and stop-start of their rowing, their backs to the horizon where the sun skulks, out of sight for a month now and for another month to come. The men will see the steady light from Varja's curtainless houses, lost in their own sea of dim-lit land. They're already out beyond the Honoya stack, nearly at the place where the shoal was sighted earlier in the afternoon, worried into bright action for a whale. After, Marin will wish she rose and kissed them both on each rough cheek. She will wish she had watched them go to the water in their stitched seal skins, her father's strung-out stride and Eric's shambling behind. Wished that she had felt anything at all about them going, other than gratitude for the time alone with Mama and Dina, for the easiness of other women. Because, at twenty, and with her first marriage proposal come three weeks before, she at last considered herself one of them. Dag Bjornsson was making them a house from his father's second boathouse, and before a winter was done, it would be finished, and they wed. After, she will think, perhaps she should have watched for Dag too. But instead she fetched the damaged sailcloth and spread it over all their knees, and did not look up until the bird or the sound or the change in the air called her to the window to watch the light shifting across the dark sea. Her arms crackle. She brings one needle-coarsened finger to the other and pushes it under her woolen cuff, feels the hair stiff and the skin beneath it tightening. The boats are still rowing, still steady in the uncertain light, lamps glimmering. And then the sea rises up and the sky swings down and greenish lightning slings itself across everything, flashing the black into an instantaneous, terrible brightness. Mama is fetched the window by the light and the noise, the sea and the sky clashing like a mountain splitting so they feel it through their souls and spines, sending Marin's teeth into her tongue and hot salt down her gullet. And then maybe both of them are screaming, but there is no sound save the sea and the sky and all the boat lights swallowed and the boats flashing and the boats spinning, the boats flying, turning, gone. Marin goes spilling out into the wind, creased double by her suddenly sodden skirts, Dina calling her in, wrenching the door behind to keep the fire from going out. The rain is a weight on her shoulders, the wind slamming her back, hands tight in on themselves, grasping nothing. She is screaming so loud her throat will be bruised for days. All about her are the mothers, sisters, daughters, are throwing themselves at the weather, dark, rain-slick shapes, clumsy as seals. The storm drops before she reaches the harbour, two hundred paces from home, its empty mouth gaping at the sea. The clouds roll themselves up and the waves fall, resting at each other's horizons, gentle as a flock settling. The women of Varja gather at the scooped-out edge of their island, and though some are still shouting, Marin's ears ring with silence. Before her, the harbour is wiped smooth as a mirror. Her jaw is caught on the hinges of itself, her tongue dripping blood warm down her chin. Her needle is threaded in the web between her thumb and forefinger, the wound a neat circle of pink. As she watches, a final flash of lightning illuminates the hatefully still sea, and from its blackness rise oars and rudders and a full mast with gently stowed sails, like underwater forests uprooted. Of their men, there is no sign. It is Christmas Eve. So I've been talking to Kieran Millwood Hargrave. We've been talking about her novel, The Mercies, which is out in the UK from Picador. Kieran, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much. It's lovely to talk to you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. 
If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.